Hello, and welcome to Raising Eco-Minimalists, a podcast that acts as a community for those who are raising kids who care about their mind, body, and the earth. I'm Laura, your host, mom to a five-year-old and self-described anxious eco-minimalists. Thanks for joining. Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today's episode is a follow-up to the last episode where I talked all about eco-minimalism. This one continues that conversation by talking about what this podcast is really all going to be about, and that's raising kids who are eco-minimalists. The guest today is arguably one of the leaders in the sustainable minimalist or eco-minimalist movement, and one that I am incredibly grateful and super excited to have on the show, and that's Stephanie Safarian, host of the Sustainable Minimalist podcast, which is one of my favorites, and also the author of the book that was released earlier this year called Sustainable Minimalism. Stephanie shares tips that I found super useful, and I think you will as well. Now, this episode is just a tad bit longer than episodes normally would be, but considering that this episode is, along with the previous episode, really lays the foundation of the podcast, I was okay with it being a little bit longer. So let's head to the show. Hello, Stephanie. Welcome, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Hi, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to connect with you again. Yeah. So we've known each other for a while within the sustainable living online realm. I think we first met when you posted in a blogging group that I was in on Facebook, uh, looking for somebody to talk about zero waste on your podcast. And my family and I had just finished our challenge and I was super gung-ho to talk to anybody about (laughs) zero waste. (laughs) And uh, so I responded and we connected and we did the interview, long story short, for whatever reason, my computer didn't like Zencaster, which is what we're using to record, uh, or didn't like me or something, I don't know. And it did not upload my portion of the interview, uh, which was really embarrassing for me because I work in IT in my day job. So I consider myself fairly computer savvy, but... For whatever reason, it didn't work. Uh, but we did end up re-recording, and and we've just kind of known each other since then. Yeah, second chance is a charm for us, and uh, it wouldn't be podcasting without a little bit of technical difficulty here or there. So the great news is I got a friend out of the two recordings, so it all worked out. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it was meant to be. So for those of you who don't know, uh, I'm talking with Stephanie Safarian. She is the host of the fantastic podcast, The Sustainable Minimalists, one of my favorites. Uh, she's also the author of the book, Sustainable Minimalism which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, But for those of you who don't know who she is, um, Stephanie, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started? Sure. My name is Stephanie. Thank you for the excellent introduction. I never particularly thought so much about the state of the planet or about how much I was consuming and buying until I had had a daughter, until I became a mother. And Very soon after experiencing that major life transition, I was also 
overwhelmed with all of the baby stuff in our tiny apartment. My husband and I had lived in a 850 square foot apartment quite happily. And then the baby came and all the clothes, all the gear, all the stuff just really suffocated me. Uh, It took a lot of free time to maintain all these possessions in this small house, organize, clean, put them away. And I didn't have much free time as a new mother trying to (laughs) figure out how to be a parent. And so I decided minimalism was for me, deciding what's important, deciding what's necessary in terms of possessions and responsibly decluttering and donating all the rest. But back then, this must have been about five years ago now, minimalists, all the big name minimalist influencers were talking about sparking joy and letting go of items and I did not want to let go of perfectly good stuff by sending it to the landfill that just did not sit right with me. And I knew that if minimalism meant throwing good stuff out, then I wasn't a minimalist. So (laughs) I thought to myself, okay, maybe I'm an environmentalist. Maybe I should look into zero waste living techniques. And so I went on the other side of the spectrum and explored that realm, which was one I had never really thought about much before. And I ultimately decided that while a true zero waste life wasn't where I could see myself going anytime soon with a child, I wanted to be more environmentally friendly as a minimalist. And at the time, nobody was talking about eco-minimalism or what I call sustainable minimalism. And so I was sleep deprived one day. This is no joke. I always tell this story and people don't believe me, but I literally just bought a domain name, mamaminimalist.com. I just bought it. I had no idea what I was going to do with it. I just did it. And fast forward five years, my blog turned into a podcast. My podcast turned into a book and I get to sit here and talk to you. So I think a lot of people can relate to that. Uh, You know, having kids really kind of accelerates our journeys into these lifestyles. And I also think people can relate to not really feeling like they fit into the minimalist side or solely the environmental side. Um, But you mentioned your book. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So my book came out in January of this year, and it is a roadmap for anyone, particularly parents, who but not just parents. There is a parenting slant, but it's for anybody who wants to be a minimalist, but also be eco-friendly in their minimalist lifestyle. So you're cleaning out your garage, which is what I did this weekend. And you find these old cross-country skis from 10 years ago. (laughs) What do you do with those? Do you just put them on the curb or are there resources in your area that will happily take and infuse new life into those cross-country skis. I also talk in the book about reducing reliance on plastic, storing food without plastic, shopping at the grocery store in ways that harness your community growers instead of the growers thousands of miles away. I talk about uh, fostering self-sufficiency. So we really run the gamut in uh, sustainable minimalism. Yeah, it's a really comprehensive book. Um, I loved it. And I love how you structure it with the apple tree. Uh, Can you talk quickly about that? Yes. So I 
my experience was that <laughs> when I was first starting out down this new lifestyle, down this sustainable minimalist journey, I needed to go in a practical and incremental approach. I, I, I couldn't start with the hardest thing. I couldn't start with beekeeping. I couldn't start with even composting. I needed to start real small, which was line drying my clothes <laughs> or brewing my coffee at home. Or I needed to start really simply. And I needed to master those quote unquote simple lifestyle tips and tricks before I could ever get ready to compost or beekeep or uh, can my own vegetables. And I find that when I talk to my listeners of my own podcast, they have the same experience. A lot of the information out on the interweb talks about these big and lofty goals like eliminating plastic waste in your house or eliminating reliance on your car. And those things are awesome and necessary. However, for the vast majority of people who are just dipping their toes into eco-friendliness, I don't, I don't suggest that they start there. I, thought, I suggest that they start out slow, simple, easy, and master one small thing and then another small thing and then another and another before we start tackling the big lifestyle changes. So when it comes to eco-friendly living and minimalism, there's not really a set definition. And that's especially true with eco or sustainable minimalism. So I'm curious to know what how you define that term. Yeah, so there's all these terms out there, right? Green, eco-friendly, sustainable. And for me, what sustainable means is we're not just looking at right now, April 2021, we're looking at what can our actions do to preserve the planet for the future? So eco-friendly means, in my opinion, it means right now, is this action caring for the planet in this moment? But sustainable takes that a step further in that it has a future component. Is this action ensuring that our planet is habitable for our children? Yeah, that's a great point. How does the definition of sustainable minimalism change when kids get thrown into the mix? <laughs> well, Laura, I know you're a mom. Uh, kids throw wrenches into everything, <laughs> don't they? <laughs> uh, I would say that minimalism is hard. <laughs> Minimalism with kids is extremely hard and sustainable minimalism with kids is extremely, extremely hard. So kids produce a lot of waste. There's the food waste, there's the gear, there's the ripped clothes, there's the toys. Uh, I could go on and on. And so sustainable minimalism with kids, I think at its root is not about perfection. It's about being more intentional in your purchasing and being more intentional in your daily choices that keep the planet in mind. So again, um, I, my family, as hard as I try, my kids are still wasting food. As hard as I try, I'm still buying stuff here and there. 
uh, a great example was my four-year-old is now starting soccer, so she needs cleats. I tried really hard to get cleats from somebody in my community, but every kid is starting soccer. And so those cleats went quick. So I had to buy cleats. Again, it's not about being perfect. It's not about being 100% zero waste. It's not about being 100% sustainable, but it is about doing your darndest to reduce your environmental impact and your household's environmental impact. So why, in your opinion, is it important to integrate this sustainable minimalism lifestyle into our kids' lives? Oh, that's a great question. And number one is that I want my kids to care about the planet because they're going to inherit it. They are going to inherit the problems of past generations. They are going to inherit the consequences of a single-use throwaway culture that we all have embraced for the last 80 years. And I believe something that I've heard you say before, which is it is our job as parents to raise the next generation of environmental stewards. So we need to teach our kids why environmentalism is important so that they can be best prepared to face the consequences of climate change and global global warming head on. Something that I think about a lot is how can I, as a parent, raise my son, uh, as you said, to care about the earth and also, you know, build that climate resiliency. I agree with what everything that you said there. So I feel like we could probably talk about these types of topics forever. Um, but I wanted to jump into a few specific pieces that you talk about in your book that I know are not only common pain points for me and my family, but also for other people. Um, so if that's okay with you. Let's do it. All right. So the first one that really jumped out to me is something that uh, goes along with what I really believe in, and that uh, you say enacting a family vision. And I think it's similar to what I talk about, which is when you jump into a movement or a lifestyle like sustainable minimalism, you need to have a why. So am I off base there? Is, is it, I think it's so similar. That's exactly right. It's, you know, I am not a CEO of a multi-million dollar corporation. I'm just the head of my household. <laughs> but I would think that CEOs of multi-million dollar corporations have a vision and a mission statement uh, to help them guide their principles as they seek to navigate entrepreneurship. And I think that it's important for parents to do the same thing within the confines of their house because life is stressful. Parents are overwork, don't have enough time in the day. And so it's not possible, but it actually happens all the time that life passes us by. How many times have we heard other parents say, I blinked and they're 18 or they grow so fast. Uh, life does just pass us by when we don't get intentional about what we want to prioritize. So in my house, my husband and I, like we actually sat down and had this conversation one night after the kids went to bed when we were tired and just wanted to watch Netflix. But what do we want our family life to center around? And we decided that we didn't want it to center around stuff. We decided we didn't want to holidays, especially to be centered around 
presents and plastic junk. We wanted to instead, because our money is not unlimited by any means, instead of spending a lot of money on Christmas presents, let's say, um, we want to prioritize time as a family. So not last year and not the year before that, thanks to COVID, but usually around the holidays, we give our children five presents each, and then we take we do something as a family. And so that's like in our family mission. And related to having a family mission is relying on that mission when parenting gets sticky. And my my oldest daughter just turned seven. And every year that she grows older, eco-friendly parenting gets a little bit stickier. And I mean, what I mean by that is she's asking some questions that kind of put me in the hot seat. And so I find myself relying and going back to that mission statement all the time. You know, she wants to know why her best friend has this new electronic or has this or can use this phone or whatever it may be. And in in my response to that is always, you know, we do things differently in this household. That's not to say that your friends and their households are doing it wrong. It's just to say that we do things differently. And yeah, the mission really helps ground us and keep us centered around what we've decided is important when the going gets sticky. Yeah, so many good points there. And I especially love that you mentioned specifically to do it with your family, because I think that can also help uh, another common pain point, which is, you know, people say, oh, my spouse isn't on board with me or my kids aren't on board. But if you sit down together, you know, it may not, the mission may not look exactly like how you want it or how you would do it if it's just you. However, you can come to a compromise to something that you all agree on and, and incorporate that lifestyle a little bit easier. Yeah, I totally agree. You got to get, especially for families with older children, it's really pivotal to get everybody invested because if you're the only one that's invested, you're going to face an uphill battle. I would assume. <laughs> yeah, I would assume as well too. I my son's only five and a half, but I I'm already seeing kind of things that you've mentioned about about that, and I know it's only going to get worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you mentioned gifts. Tell us about maybe some tips on um, on gift giving, gift receiving. I know you talk specifically about a no present birthday. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I'll talk about the no present birthday because both my daughter's birthdays were in March. So <laughs> it's fresh in my mind. Uh, I want my children's birthdays. I want my children to remember their birthdays, not on the heaps of stuff they got, but on the opportunity to be surrounded by their closest family members and their closest friends. I want the emphasis to be on those interpersonal connections. I want it not to be on opening a bunch of gifts, especially also because opening gifts in front of a crowd, I think back to when I was a kid, I hated that. That was uncomfortable. That was the opposite of enjoyable. And I just uh, don't want that experience for my children. I want them to play and laugh 
and enjoy their grandparents, their aunts, uncles, and their friends. And so their birthday parties have traditionally been gift free. Now, I'll say that with a caveat because my husband and I do give my daughters about two gifts each on their birthday, and then the grandparents give a bit too. But friends, extended family, it's gift free. And a very simple way in which I invite guests to contribute to the party without bringing a gift is very simple. It is come with a wrapped children's book. They wrap a children's book, they bring it to my house, I put all the wrapped books to the side. And at the end of the party, each child takes a book home. They pick one of the wrapped books, not the one they brought. And that book then is their party favor. So the the, the guests are contributing to the party. Nobody wants to come empty handed. My children aren't overwhelmed with a bunch of gifts that they frankly don't need. And then at the end of the party, the guests get to leave with what I consider is a better version of a, of a goodie bag because it's free of you know, plastic junk that traditionally comes in the goodie bag. So I've done this now for five years (laughs) and I am going to do it for as long as I possibly can, hopefully for the next 13 until my oldest turns 18. We will see. It's just, it's simple, it's easy, and it checks off all my eco-minimalist values. That's brilliant. Uh, And I imagine that the parents of your daughter's friends also appreciate not having to worry about getting a gift. Uh, It also alleviates any financial pressure if anyone's having financial issues. So yeah, that's, that's, I'm definitely going to incorporate that into my son's next birthday. (laughs) Well, let me know how it goes for you. I will say that the parents, even though I've been doing this for five years, and even though I've been inviting the same families to the birthday party for five years, the parents are still confused. I think I need to do a better job about telling them that the book isn't for my daughter. <laughs> they, 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 I think they do think that like they're bringing a book for my daughter. <laughs> so I got to work on the language there, but overall I, I, I stand by my, my book party favors strategy. <laughs> yeah. Less work for you too. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm all about less work. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, uh, all right. So I feel like this next one could be a huge topic, but uh, toy boundaries is how you word it in your book. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? I guess I should say first and foremost that I've yet to meet a parent that doesn't want the best for their children, right? Every parent wants their child to have diverse play experiences, all the opportunities in the world. All parents are united in that. I think where we get caught up is that parents tend to assume that more toys means more opportunity. And I found myself, especially in the early days as a mother, becoming caught up in that logic. Like, wouldn't more toys mean more stimulation for my baby? Like, doesn't that make sense? (laughs) It actually doesn't. And um, I would suggest and research would also suggest that fewer toys, fewer quality toys means deeper play, more imaginative play. And I actually just had a guest on my podcast a couple weeks back um, uh, from a new company called Tiny Earth Toys, who made the distinction between passive toys and active toys. Active toys are the toys that blink and light up and make annoying noises, (laughs) whereas passive toys are battery-free. When establishing toy boundaries in your house, 
it's prudent to um, let the passive toys, the battery-free toys, really come to the forefront and put the active toys away because research has found that when children play with the active, blinking, loud toys, they actually have a reduced play experience. And so that's not to say don't have anything with batteries in your playroom. It's more to say, watch your child, see how they best interact with the toy in front of them and adjust accordingly. My toy room, my my children are fortunate to have a toy room. Toy rooms are not um, in every house. My children have a toy room. But that said, I really try to be intentional about not overstocking it. So keeping some toys in and rotating them every week or so, that helps keep down the mess, that helps keep down the overwhelm, especially with my four-year-old. She's kind of, if she has too many options. She doesn't play as deeply as she would as as if she had fewer options. So rotating the toys is really great. And then one other strategy I have for toy boundaries is each of my daughters has a, what I like to call a treasure chest. There's nothing treasury about it. It's just a repurposed Amazon box that they decorated, but it's a small box and each child can keep a selection of their favorite toys in their box at all times. So I'm not rotating those. I'm not taking those out. But the rule is that the toys that they decide are their favorite that go into their treasure chest, they need to fit in the box. So it's a constant renegotiation of what they consider their favorite, what goes in the box, what versus what is just a toy that they like. Those are really good tips. I like the idea of having... Uh, kind of a a keep out box because we do try to rotate my son's toys as well but he's always oh I really I like this one this one's you know I want this one out don't put this one away and it's just like well you can't keep all of them out that defeats the purpose of rotating toys so (laughs) I I I do like the idea of having he can pick um, but then the rest get rotated that's that's a really good idea yeah and I do think it's important that we provide opportunities for our children to assess and reassess favorites versus non-favorites, right? Because with toys, everything everything can be a favorite if we let everything be a favorite. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And that's, that's definitely happens from time to time in our house too. It's, it's like, it's like when you declutter and then you get, you pull this stuff out to donate and the kid finds the toy box and, oh my gosh, this is my favorite toys. You haven't seen it for three months. <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah, that definitely makes sense. Let's uh, wrap up here again. I think we could talk about these all day. At least I know I could. Um, but there's a few questions that I plan to ask every guest. So um, we're going to get started into those. And the first one is, what is one of your biggest challenges in raising eco-minimalists or sustainable minimalists right now? So I try and stay positive and upbeat on my show. I try and um, offer solutions as opposed to offer you know, fear <laughs> and anxiety. But I do personally, on a personal level, struggle with the notion that, is this all futile? <laughs> is bringing my cup to Starbucks actually <laughs> helping anybody or... Um, or am I just, you know, making myself feel better? I read all the headlines. I feel as though I have a pretty good understanding of what climate scientists are warning. And 
I wonder if there's abs- actually anything that I can do in my capacity as a mother or as an author or as a podcast host to change the course of what's coming. I 100% feel you there. That's, I think, a lot of people do as well. It's, it, yeah, it's easy to go down that rabbit hole for me as well. <laughs> so, um, so one big pain point that I know comes up often is balancing the time-saving convenience items that so often seem to come with kids uh, that usually aren't super eco-friendly and balancing that with sustainable living. Hmm. Well, the first item that comes to mind when I hear you ask that question is, of course, like the, the snack packs, the food wrapped and individually wrapped <laughs> plastic. Uh, I would say that, you know, savvy marketing professionals have marketed specifically to moms since the 1930s, I just learned, uh, about the value of convenience, right? Like the these cheese sticks are convenient and you're so overworked and you're so time strapped that you need this cheese stick in plastic. That's just an example, right? And by and large, parents have bought into that narrative that we are um, overworked and we are time strapped. So we need this it product. Um, I would say that in my own home, when it comes to fighting back against disposability, it comes with just taking that incremental approach, attacking one problem at a time with its green alternative. So in the case of the cheese stick, instead of buying the cheese stick, which I used to do all the time, I love cheese, uh, it's buying the block of cheese and cutting it up at home and putting it into my glass containers for lunches for the week. So that's just one example, but trying that change on for size sticking with it, not taking on any other changes until the the cheese sticks. <laughs> and then once I feel really confident about that, then I'm going to tackle another one. A- another example here would be I mean, my my kids are just about out of diapers. My four-year-old still wears them at night, but like, but the diapers, right? Parents ha- were marketed disposable diapers because they're quote unquote convenient. And so when I switched my well, I didn't switch her, but when my second daughter was born and I decided I was going to clock diaper her, that change, I sat with that change for months and months before I felt like I got it. I did not add anything else onto my plate until I felt like I could reasonably cloth diaper most of the time. So I hope that answers your question. It does. And I think that last example brings up a really great point, uh, which is while you're working on one thing, so in, you know, in your example, the cloth diapers, it's okay to not be able to focus on another area. And, you know, it's okay to, to not feel guilty about that. Because uh, I think so often, especially as moms, at least for me, you know, I see all these things that I could be doing, but for whatever reason, it's just not accessible for me at that time. And, and, and the guilt is really, it's really big. Um, but just knowing that we're doing our best and making changes as we can, I think is important. Yeah. And just to piggyback off what you said, I would say that when I start to feel that way, when I start to feel that guilt, I just remind myself to stay in my lane. My lane is at this moment, (laughs) mastering cloth diapers or getting rid of cheese sticks or (laughs) whatever the thing is, just stay in your lane and you'll, you'll get there to the other things when it's your time. 
Yeah, that's that's really good to remember. All right. Uh, so what are some of your favorite resources for raising eco-minimalists or sustainable minimalism, uh, obviously besides your own podcast and book? Well, I have to say your own platform, Laura. I love your platform. I love your blog. I'm so excited you pivoted to a podcast. Welcome to the podcasting world. I would also say for anybody looking for resources, uh, hop on Instagram, search by hashtag we are out there. And, um, you know, all of us, when I say we, I mean, like the eco-friendly blogging community, like we're here to to answer questions and offer support however we can. I was never on Instagram prior to <laughs> I'm, prior to starting my blog. And so now Instagram is like this whole new world of awesomeness. And so anybody who <laughs> isn't on Instagram yet, come on over. It is, it is a roaring good time. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, that's good advice. Uh, and thank you for the kind words. I feel the same about your platform as well. Um, if anyone looking for hashtags on Instagram, there is a pretty active hashtag sustainable minimalism or hashtag eco minimalism or minimalist. Hmm. To, to wrap up with the final question, where can folks find you, your podcast, uh, your book? My podcast is called The Sustainable Minimalist. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. And my book is called Sustainable Minimalism. It can be found anywhere you buy books. <laughs> if your local bookstore doesn't have it, you can ask for them to stock it. And same with your library. If you're just not looking to add another book to your shelf, you can request that your library adds it to their collection and you can read it and then allow others in your community to read it. So uh, thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure to talk with you as always. Thank you so much, Laura. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much again for tuning in today. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing. These three things are the best way to ensure that the podcast reaches other people who are trying to raise eco-minimalists. Additionally, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, as well as the link to join the Facebook community group, all in the show notes. Finally, don't forget that you can become a member of the podcast and receive benefits such as extra bonus episodes, episodes a day early, learn about guests ahead of time, and lots more. The link to becoming a member or to find out more info is also in the show notes. Oh, and one last thing. Don't forget that in order for sustainable living to be sustainable, it has to be sustainable for you. Until next time, bye.